0: Good morning. It's great to be back with you. Kathy and I are here and and happy. We have come to the 17th chapter in our study of the Gospel of Luke, and I'd like you to go ahead and turn there, the 17th chapter. Get ready. Get comfortable. Fasten your seatbelt. Whatever uh, you need to do. I want to begin this morning by taking a look at the context of chapter 17, as it sits within the entire scope of the Gospel of John. There's 24 chapters in all. In Luke 17, our Lord Jesus is in the final months of his earthly life as he approaches Jerusalem to die and to rise again. It's been a journey since chapter 9, verse 51, where it tells us that he set his face resolutely toward Jerusalem. He'll arrive in Jerusalem in the 19th chapter, verse 28. So from chapter 9 to chapter 19, we are in the final six months of Jesus' ministry as he approaches Jerusalem for that purpose. And during this time, his focus is on teaching the gospel of the kingdom, In the broadest sense, and he does that to very large crowds of people, and he's not moving in a direct line towards Jerusalem. He's traversing the land back and forth, up and down, town, village, city, countryside, everywhere that he can go uh, to preach the gospel of the kingdom. Uh, All these kingdom parables perform miracles to cast out demons, to raise people from the dead, to lay convincing proof... That He is the Messiah, God in the flesh, who has come to bring salvation and to offer the kingdom of God. And along the way, He draws massive crowds. In fact, in the 12th chapter of Luke, verse 1, we read, So many of the thousands of the multitude had gathered together, they were trampling on one another. And the very first thing that He says, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. That's the yeast, Jesus says, hypocrisy. And so the language here indicates that there are multiple tens of thousands of people that came to hear Jesus. And as he's speaking to these massive crowds, we see that in the flow of these chapters in the Gospel of Luke that chronicle these last months, he's, he's preaching to the widest possible audience, and then at the same time, his focus narrows to two particular groups of people. And he goes back and forth between directing his teaching to his disciples, those who are his followers, and those who are the Pharisees and the scribes, who are the guardians of the Jewish religion. And they are the purveyors of the reigning theology that dominates the land and the minds of the people because they had plied their religious teaching in the synagogues. And Jesus said of this religious teaching, this is this is what their teaching was nothing more than a bunch of rules made by man. And they load people down with incredible loads and they themselves can't even carry it and they don't lift a finger to help them. And there's a synagogue in every place where there's even like the smallest group of Jewish people. And so Jesus' focus is directed on one hand at the disciples and then on the other hand at the Pharisees. And so to Jesus, the Pharisees are the false teachers, the false religionists, the false doctrinists against whom He shows this contrast of being a true disciple actually is. And so everything that they were, He's wanting the disciples not to be. Everything that they are not, He's wanting the disciples to become. And so these two groups are contrasted against one another. And the defining attribute of the Pharisees could be marked by pride. They're very proud of their religious attainment. They love the chief seats. They love the the high place in the synagogue. They love to be called names of dignity and honor, rabbi, teacher. They love to be at the main table at the banquet. They love to be seen as elevated above other people. Everything they did, whether there was praying or their fasting or their giving or their behavior or their Facebook profile. They moved around. Even the clothing they wore manifested this self-exaltation, this pride. They had some spiritual knowledge that others didn't have. They'd achieved a relationship with God which they believed was merited by their own religion, by their own self-righteousness, and they believed they had acceptance and favor with God, that they were blessed by God over and above those who were not part of their number. So there's a very clear contrast in the final months of Jesus as He goes back and forth between these two groups. And you only need to scan back a few chapters to see statements like, and Jesus said to the Pharisees, and He said to the disciples, and He said to the Pharisees, and then He turned to the disciples. And so He goes back and forth, so there's this point-counterpoint thing going on here. And Jesus calls those who come to faith in Him to a faith that is 180 from that which is demonstrated in the lives of the Pharisees. And if the Pharisees' lives could be summed up as the manifestation of hypocrisy and of pride, then what Jesus is calling His disciples to is the opposite, which is humility. Pride. Humility. And so as the 17th chapter opens, the contrast between pride and humility is really the subject here. As Scripture, God has said frequently that He hates pride. He resists proud people. He punishes proud people. Proverbs 3 and verse 34, Scripture says, God gives grace to the humble, but God is hostile in opposition to the proud. And that very clear statement is repeated twice in the New Testament, repeated by James, the brother of Jesus, who rejected Him until after His resurrection. And it was repeated by Peter in 1 Peter 5.5, 5, whose issue was pride. That God gives grace to the humble, but is opposed to the proud. Pride leads the list of attitudes that God hates. Proverbs 6 it's the top of the list in Proverbs 6. On the other hand, humility leads the list of attitudes that God loves. God hates pride. He loves humility. In fact, in Proverbs sixteen eighteen, God says, Pride always comes before destruction. Always. I think Luke understood this. I think that Luke records this for us to emphasize the emphasis that Jesus placed on it. In fact, in Luke 14, verse 11, Jesus says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Unless you repent, unless you change and become like a little child, you will never enter the kingdom. Again, what is it that Jesus is talking about here? What's the context of Luke 17? The imminent coming of the King. And it's absolutely buried, pinned to the ground under the crushing weight of urgency. This, brothers and sisters, Luke 17 is a warning. That's what this is. If you're not a big fan of fire and brimstone preaching... I can tell you, you would not have liked to have heard Jesus preach at all. Because He says that the day of the Son of Man is coming like a thief in the night. It's coming like a bolt of lightning. He is treading out like a wine press. The fury of the wrath of God and the people on the earth are going to mourn because of Him. And that's exactly part of our text this morning. Look at Luke 17, 26 or 33. We're going to kind of come sideways into this. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark, and then the flood came and destroyed them all. Verse 28. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. And the very day that Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur, fire and brimstones, where the term comes from right here, rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. Verse 30, it will be just like this on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. Verse 31, on that day, if you're on the roof of your house, you've got no time to go get your stuff. If you're out in the field, don't go back home. And then look at what Jesus says in verse 32. He says, do you remember Lot's wife? She did that. Pfft. Vaporized. Nothing but a little pile of salt. Verse 33 Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. Utter urgency, utter warning. The King is coming. So, what's Jesus talking about here? Son of Man, the Son of Man prophecy. Jesus uses that title referring to himself 106 times. And what does it say? Daniel seven fourteen. He was given authority, glory, sovereign power, all nations, all peoples, every language worshipped Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So this is about the king and the kingdom. But before we can ever look at what the kingdom will be in the future, we have to understand what the kingdom is in the present. Before we can look at the future reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to look at the present reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 20 of this chapter. Luke tells us, Now having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, Jesus answered them. He said, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs that can be observed like, hey, there it is, or hey, here it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's among you. It's within you. Where's the kingdom of God? It's wherever the king is. And Jesus says, I'm standing right here. All authority in heaven and all authority on earth is mine. Moreover, the Father judges no one. All judgment belongs to me. Now, just the topic of kingdoms and kings is kind of foreign to us. We've never had a king in the United States of America. In fact, this country was born in a revolution against the king. We pride ourselves on never having been dominated by a king, most of the civilized world and now, for and for a long time. just doesn't exist under the rule of kings. There are some royal families here and there who are more symbolic than actual in their sovereign power. The world's moved away from kings. We don't live under people who can do whatever they like, whenever they like, with whom they like, without any recourse. In fact, when we find somebody who rules like that, what do we call them usually? A dictator. And the free world becomes outraged with the idea of autocratic domination. We gather our political powers and sometimes our military powers, and we try to liberate these people who are under absolute dominion over someone else this world is not a world of kings anymore we have no experience with what it means to live under absolute sovereignty our understanding of sovereignty and power our understanding of privilege and authority and rule is diffused It's diffused into a balance of power that is spread across many people and agencies and institutions in kind of a checks and balance system. And in fact, even the system is basically the product of the population. The people determine who they're going to give authority to. So ultimately, it's the people who are sovereign. It is the very opposite of what it is to live under the rule of a king. We want to make sure that nobody has too much power anywhere over anyone at any time. Even in our churches, we want independence, free will, autonomy. I don't want anybody tell me what I'm supposed to believe. So we don't have a very good understanding of living under the reign of a king. It is precisely the thing that our society disdains that is exactly what Jesus Christ claims for himself. Absolute supremacy, absolute sovereignty, absolute free exercise of his will without any consultation, without any restraint. That's exactly what it means to be king. It's exactly what it means to be king of All of heaven and all of earth. He has supreme power. He has supreme wisdom. He has supreme knowledge. He makes supreme judgments based on information that is not available to us. We cannot understand His ways because they are unfathomable. He is unsearchable. No one has given Him counsel. He does not ask your opinion. He is absolutely supreme and sovereign. He is absolutely God. Amen. At the end of the 17th chapter of Luke, the very last verse, verse 37, the disciples ask Jesus, where, Lord, where is all this going to go down? And Jesus answers, where there's a dead body, there the vultures will gather. And sure enough, they did. And they still do. It says, Jesus is saying, My death on the cross is going to be the biggest scandal the world will ever know. And that's what scandal does. It gathers the vultures. But my resurrection, Jesus says, on the third day, is going to change everything. Everything in heaven. And everything on earth forever and ever the King is coming. That's exactly what Jesus said five chapters back in Luke 12, 49, 51. I have come to bring fire on the earth, how I wish it was already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo and what constraint I'm under until... It's completed. Did you hear that? Everything you see Jesus doing in these Gospels prior to his resurrection, he is constrained. Well, guess what? He's not constrained anymore. Do you think I came to bring peace on the earth? That's what everybody's praying for. No, I didn't come to bring peace on the earth. The division, a sword. He says in Matthew ten, Jesus says, "I'm going to force you into a corner and make you choose. Who do you say that I am? It's your choice." That's Luke nine twenty where this whole thing begins. It's exactly what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3.14. Just as Moses lifted up the bronze snake in the desert on the pole, this is Numbers 21, so the Son of Man in the same way will be lifted up on a cross at His crucifixion. It will be a scandal. The vultures will gather. John 3.16, God so loved the world that through Christ's scandalous death He would force... People into a position to be given an opportunity to choose. Every person must choose. No one else can choose for you. Life or death, it's your choice. Just as it was in Numbers 21, we're all snake bit. Death is our default. To put it more clearly, hell is our default destination. But Jesus provided the way, the truth, and the life. It cannot be earned. Salvation is a free gift, but following Jesus into His kingdom will cost you absolutely everything, even your very life. And Jesus says, Whoever, whoever would come after me, because everybody's got a choice, must deny themselves and take up their cross every single day you're on this planet and follow me in Luke 14:27 whoever does not carry their own cross and follow me cannot be my disciple hypocrisy humility that's the choice humility leads to death i mean hypocrisy leads to death humility Leads to life. That's the context of Luke seventeen. Based on that context, let's allow turn our attention to the first ten verses of this chapter. We're not walking through the front door of this chapter like we normally do. It's more like we are climbing through the bedroom window of our hearts to look at this where we live. Where we make our messes? Jesus said to His disciples, things that cause people to stumble, the ESV uses the phrase temptations to sin, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come. The ASV says they're impossible to avoid. But woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. Let me stop right there for a moment. I'm convinced that whoever signed these verse breaks right here sometime in the 6th or 7th century made a big mistake. Because this three-word sentence should have been placed in verse 2. Because this is all one thought. So watch yourself, Larry. We tend to read this based on the verses that follow, that offense is always the other person, that I'm just innocently walking through my life waiting to be offended, tempted, or made to stumble because it's inevitable. And that that guy... Needs a millstone hung around his neck and drowned in the sea. Hear me this morning. Offense is a two-way street. What if I'm that guy? What if I'm walking through my life like a bull in a china closet? Hey, man, I'm trying to serve Jesus here. Get out of the way. I need to watch myself. And now with what should have been all of verse 3. See, pride and arrogance right here. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. When you rebuke somebody, don't you want to rebuke them real good? (laughs) Offense is a two-way street. And if they repent, forgive them. And if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, "I repent, you must forgive them." That is a command. That's what that is. Seven times, as Peter says, "Hey, that's like a lot of times." Now Jesus says, "70 times seven. And so we, you know, we do the math, 70 times 7, that's 490. Okay, I can work with that. And then that guy, Mr. Millstone Boy, hits 491 with me. I always wanted to have a t-shirt made that had a big 491 right here, because that's where I live most of the time. But then I'm missing the entire point because I know that Jesus is wearing a shirt for me that says 44,999,991. I hit 491 with Jesus every single day of my life. And Jesus says, Larry, you must forgive in the same way that I forgive you. And then when when I give, do I really? Do I truly forgive others or do I put them... On probation. Yes, I do that. Yeah, I'll tell you when you're out of jail. I'm horrible. And I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about me, so it's okay to talk about it, right? Jesus says, Larry, with the same measure you use. That little teaspoon of forgiveness that you dole out your forgiveness with. He says, let me borrow that, because that's the exact same measure I'm going to use for you. Matthew 7. Watch yourself, Larry. So moving on, verse 5. Here's the disciples' entire response to Jesus' teaching. Three words. Increase our faith. Ah, now, this surely must be the solution to their whole forgiveness problem. These guys just don't have enough faith. Lord, increase our faith. Did Jesus do it? Here, here's a bunch. Now you're fixed. No. He didn't do that. You know why He didn't do that? Because this is not about faith. This is about obedience. It's not about faith or the lack of faith. It's about His command to forgive. You must forgive. And that's Jesus' entire point in verse 6. Jesus says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, I'm talking about a microscopic grain of sand, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the seed and it will obey you. Operative word here. Jesus only addresses faith right here because of their conclusion that more faith was something they didn't have and the only solution to their disobedience of His direct command to forgive others in the same way. Jesus says it doesn't take hardly any faith to be obedient. That's his whole point. We are reading verse 6 totally upside down as much as we want it to be. Verse 6 is not about obtaining enough faith to have the ability in our own strength of will to take command over mulberry trees in our lives, whatever they are, our problems, our situations. In fact, I think I'm the mulberry tree in this scenario. How do I know this? Look at verses 7, 10. Same location, same breath, same thought. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, Oh, bless your heart. You've been working all day. Have a seat. Let me serve you. Pat him on the back. Does he ask him to sit down? There's this big rhetorical no hanging out there. Won't he rather say, prepare my supper. Get yourself ready. The ESV says, no, go and dress yourself properly. Well, are you offended now? No, wait on me while I eat and drink. And after that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did exactly what he was told to do? Again, the rhetorical answer, no. So you also, in the exact same way, when you have done everything you were told to do, you should say, we're unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. Hmm. We don't indebt Jesus, indebt ourselves to Him by actually doing what He commands. That's His whole point. If you and I claim to belong to Jesus, we are slaves to obedience. We are slaves to forgiveness. We must obey. We will never be set free from that ever. We're not our own. We have been bought with a price. That's why Jesus said, count the cost. Salvation is free. But being His disciple will cost you everything. We are unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. The ASV uses the word unprofitable servants. Do I have that attitude? Or do I think because of my service to Him, He owes me? I told you we're coming through the bedroom window here. There's my underwear my socks are in the floor. Kathy and I have a daughter who's battling breast cancer. It has now become stage four metastatic breast cancer. Her name is Kendall. The chemo she received four years ago, which was supposed to have eliminated the cancer, has resulted in an irreversible cardiomyopathy, which has reduced her heart function to about 30%. I'm really struggling with my attitude And I know, without a doubt, I'm absolutely unworthy. But what I don't know is whether or not I'm an unprofitable servant, because as I pray my guts out for her, I'm really struggling. You want honesty? Humility? Your messenger this morning is weak Powerless and helpless and totally out of options. And I am suffering from spiritual leprosy, which is what the next, next section is about. We'll get through this, I promise. Look at Luke 17, 11 through 19. I could spend an hour talking about these nine verses, but we don't have time. I could talk about the physiological realities of having leprosy and what we know now from modern medical research, but I won't. Leprosy is horrific. It is such a serious and communicable disease that God Himself, in Leviticus 13 and 14, lays out this very long and careful prescription for determining whether somebody had this disease and what to do as a result the local health inspectors were the priests. Since there was their responsibility to know the law of God, to apply the law of God, and since this was laid out in the law of God, if you had a skin disease of any kind, you went to see the priests and went through this process. Everything that's required. Leviticus 13 and 14, you can read it. And if it's determined that you had leprosy, you just lost everything. I mean everything your wife your kids your family your home your synagogue family your your job your whole life and then you were removed from every social situation in society the only people you could ever associate with were other lepers you were driven out to live in colonies it was the absolute worst The people you needed most, you couldn't go near. You couldn't associate with people in any other place whatsoever. You were an alien from all of life and left with others in your same horrific misery. They were the most miserable of all people. And they believed that they had been directly cursed by God because God had laid out this prescription in Leviticus. And then they were cursed by man as well because people believed that that guy obviously sinned and he had it coming to him. Some kind of a divine judgment. You remember when the man was born blind, they asked Jesus, who sinned, him or his parents? He said, neither. This happened so that the glory of God could be displayed in his life. God didn't cause the leprosy. God didn't cause the blindness. God does not cause cancer. And when Jesus comes here in Luke 17, these ten lepers are healed. Look at this in verse 11. Jesus is moving in the region between Samaria and Galilee. He entered a certain village. There's ten leprous men. They stood at a distance to try to meet Jesus. And that little phrase, at a distance, this is the real thing that makes them outcasts. Aliens. They kept their distance because it was demanded of them. So they only came as near as they dare. And in verse 13, it says they raised their voices, their feeble voices, with their affected larynxes. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. This is their only hope. This is their only chance. There's no way out of this horror. There's no cures. There's no solutions. These are desperate men. And when Jesus saw them, he said to them, Go show yourself to the priest. Seems a strange thing to say, doesn't it? Be healed or something would be would be better. But he says, Go show yourself to the priest. What is Jesus doing here? He's affirming his divine law, he's upholding the law. Leviticus thirteen, fourteen. When, when, You had leprosy. You had to show yourself to the priest. There was this long, involved protocol you went through. There was an eight-day process that goes through and makes sacrifices. And sometimes those sacrifices would take you all the way to the temple in Jerusalem before a priest would pronounce you clean. And so he says, go, show yourself to the priest, and they go. Verse 14, as they are going, they're cleansed. Can you imagine them walking? And all of a sudden, all ten of them just looking at each other and, whoa, your face. I have fingers. This amazing, stunning, shocking moment as they're all cleansed, all ten of them started toward the priest. All ten of them are healed. But then the commonality immediately is broken. Verse 15, one of them. When he saw that he'd been healed, turned back. One of them. Wheeled around. Ran back. Full of joy and amazement and wonder. And he's trying to process what this means. Think about the implications of now being able to go back to your wife, your kids, your family, your home, your life. All ten of them are thinking that. But this man, he saw something. More than that. He understood the real implications of what happened. And what is that? He had just been in the presence of God. And he returns to seek what his soul really desires. Not to thank Him for a healing, but he comes to Jesus for salvation in the person of Jesus. The other nine didn't have any interest in Jesus anymore. They got what they wanted. All ten got their miracle. Only one returned. The other nine, no desire to worship Him, no desire to glorify Him, no desire to thank Him, because they didn't see Him as God. We're going to worship God in the temple. They didn't realize God was standing right in front of them. This one man had just come face to face with God, and his soul was traumatized. And he fell on his face in utter gratitude. All ten got their miracle. All ten were healed, but only one was saved that day. And Jesus asked, Where are the other nine? Where are they? What's the point of all this? This There's a big point right here. What we see in this one man, by the fruit you will know them, there's trust, gratitude, humility, devotion, love, praise, worship, that's just simply not present in the other nine. It's a faith that embraces Jesus as God, as Lord, as King, it's a faith that falls on its face in Jesus' very presence. It's a faith, an attitude of the heart, Jesus says, that saves you. There's two primary sins, I think, that are the most basic of all sins, truly the root of every other sin. First one, selfishness. Refusing to honor God as God. Refusing to submit to His rule, His reign, His authority, His commands. In other words, disobedience. You ain't the boss of me. The other one? Ingratitude. Pride. Arrogance before God. If I were to ask you what your most base sin is, your worst action of evil... Would you come up with something like ingratitude? I doubt it. But there it is. In Luke 17, that ingratitude is our fundamental problem. We think God owes us everything we receive and much, much, much more. I realize that you guys have just now heard this message I've been sitting in this chapter for the better part of a month, studying for the sermon. I've got to tell you, I'm convicted beyond words. Because I'm guilty of all of it, every single bit of it. So today, I'm responding to this warning. I repent on my face. I choose Him. Over me. I'm done. So here's the invitation. It's not my invitation. It's not the elders' invitation. It's not WFR Church's invitation. It's His invitation. Jesus. I've asked that we not have an invitation song today. I just think it's best to give this time to Jesus. To let Him speak into our awkward silence. To be still and to know without a doubt that He is God. If you need to repent also, now's that time.